Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted to welcome back one of our most popular guests, the historian David Starkey. Uh, he needs no introduction. Uh, David, thank you for coming back. A great today. pleasure as always. Um, David, uh, before anything else, uh, it's quite a special day today, mm. isn't it? Because you're about to join the battalion of YouTubers. Can you tell us about this? Uh, I, it took me quite a long time to find out what YouTube was, you know, such, such an old dinosaur as I am. Uh, but uh, what I'm doing is I am launching later today a new YouTube channel, which is going to be given the name David Starkey Talks, right. with, very importantly, I'm told in terms of branding, three points of suspension afterwards, so right. David Starkey Talks. And I'll be talking primarily about history. Mm -hmm. And what I'll be trying to do is to do what I always have done, which is their forms really, they're a curious cross between a conversation, such as we're having now, yep. except I'm talking to myself, and old-style extemporary lecturing. The thing that I most enjoyed in all the years that I was an academic and later on on kind of periphery of that academic world, which is now, of course, post-cancellation closed to me, the thing that I really enjoyed was lecturing and small group teaching. Yes. And what this is, is an attempt at saying, here we have this new medium, in which you can actually reproduce the effect of mm. your somebody, teacher, lecturer, friend, historian, sitting here, and you sitting there. Mm. And it's as simple and direct as that. It, it rather reminds me, uh, the way you describe it, of uh, what A.G.P. Taylor used to do. Well, I always did. You see, on uh, I mean, anybody who ever saw me lecture, mm. it is exactly the same. I had, dare I say, the same tel uh, uh, talent as Taylor. Uh, you could wind me up at uh, five past ten, and I would stop at three minutes to eleven. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the standard Cambridge hour, which was mm. that, the, the ten-minute gap that enabled you to get from one place to another. Um, and talk essentially extempore. I mean, it was a technique. I learned long, long before I became an academic, long even really before I grew up. We, at my little grammar school, long extinguished, one of the first to be extinguished in the 70s, we had the tradition of a public speaking competition mm -hmm. which involved the three elements, the standard elements of reciting a piece of verse, reading unseen a piece of prose, but most importantly, what was called the stump speech. Yeah. And I can still see the setting now. There was my history master, George Zare. Uh, we always called him Zan Zare, pilot of the past. And he, you know, the, the reference to the Eagle comic, and he had um, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, famous um, Brillo pad, Andrew Brillo hair. And in school farces and satires, we represented him with just a load of Brillo pads on the head. Anyway, he was standing there looking very serious with a folded slip of paper. You went up the steps, you took the slip of paper, and you were no longer than it took you to walk at a normal speed to the centre of the room. Having looked at the bit of paper, it could be joining what was then the EU, it could be French yeah. cinema, it could yeah. be anything. You then to talk. Mm. You can do that, you can do anything. Well, so how old would you have been when you were doing I, From the age of 12. 12. And you, as a junior, it was a few minutes, two or three minutes. Mm. Uh, middle school, four. Mm. Senior, five or more. Mm. 
And do you know what? It was the only time I was ever, ever popular in the school. Because I always won for Right. <laughs> and, and again, I had a very similar experience when actually I was on the threshold of becoming an academic. And my uh, mentor, not my, the great historian Geoffrey Elton, was my intellectual mentor, but my personal mentor, my former director of studies at, at Fitzwilliam, again from which I had been expelled. And Leslie Waper very much took me under his arm. He realized I was going to have an academic career. He was the director of the extramural center, you know, where mature students mm, go. Mm, mm. Uh, I always use the phrase that mature students, like Shakespeare's meddler, were often rotten before they were ripe. But nevertheless, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. they, were, they were an interesting audience. And uh, my first lecture, I was in London because I was doing research at the time, my first lecture I prepared very carefully, you know, at the end of it, Leslie said, very good, you know, very, very good. And then, um, I'm not really sure I should be saying this publicly, but by the second lecture, I was in the throes of my first serious passion, really love, it was lust. And I wakened up in the middle of the night thinking, my God, I am lecturing at Cambridge tomorrow morning on something I don't know anything about. Yes. And you know, having scrubbed oneself out of bed, got was the nearest book on the subject, read on the reign of Richard II, death on the train, uh, had to have coffee with the students because of course it was an extramural lecture beforehand, walked up to the uh, lectern with, here, with, sort of with, with Berlioz's March to the Scaffold playing yes, in the back yes. of my head and then started lecturing. And do you know what, at the end of it, I was applauded. Really? Uh, and right. Leslie said to me, now that's how you do it. In yes. other words, not what so many people do when they lecture, vast masses of detail. Yes. It's an entirely inappropriate means of yes. communicating that. What it's very good at is big ideas and the clash of big ideas and bits of vivid, in, uh, bits of, of, of vivid incident. In other words, it is a form really of rhetoric. Yes, yes indeed. Yeah. Um, and this is why of course so many academics are so terrible at it. Yes. Um, because they may be very good at the detail, they may be very good at the technicalities of their subject, but they're hopeless at rhetoric. Before this, if we just draw back, I, I, I'm interested, you, you've done a sort of introductory video for your YouTube in which you talk about why you love history. So if we just marry those two things up, when did you first realise you were passionate about history? I, I seem to remember in one of our past conversations, uh, it wasn't history to begin with, if I'm correct. If I'm correct. I, I remember quite clearly when I was a kid, I must already have had the interest, but it was things on television such as The Six Wives of Henry VIII and Elizabeth R, which absolutely really got me going. But when was it for you? It was late. Um, remember, I am pre-television. We didn't yeah, have television yeah, okay. when I was a child, uh, or indeed when I was a, when I was a youth at, at, at grammar school, secondary school. Uh, for me, it's a two-stage process. I'd always been fascinated by things, by buildings, and for my first real engagement with all of this was when I was at primary school. I had a very advanced primary school. I still have the testimony to it in the prize that I won aged 11 in 1956 and that is inscribed environmental studies in 1956. And that was a, a series by the Quenelles um, and um, husband and wife team called the History of Everyday Things in England. 
and it was history through things, through buildings, through dress, through um, musical instruments, through scientific instruments, mm -hmm. through industrial plant. And that thinginess was always something that drove me. Um, but in terms of actual academic subjects, at secondary school, my interests were again very thingy. I was interested in the sciences. I was essentially interested in physics and chemistry. It's just that I discovered, thank heavens, because I was in a class with some extremely bright people, um, uh, but I wasn't a natural mathematician. Right. And it was, I mean, I was under a lot of pressure to do the sciences for A level. It would have been disastrous because they are now entirely mathematical. Mm. And I just did not have, I mean, I could do it, but I didn't have that excitement, Aptitude, that yeah. natural flair mm. I did for language. Mm. And so history, because of the thinginess on the one hand, the role of the precision in evidence, rather analogous to experiment and whatever, on the other, that was the thing that I naturally reverted yes. to. And it was at that point that my history master, George Zare, uh, uh, he of the Andrew Neil Hare, um, uh, really came up trumps. He was a terrible teacher, but he did something for me that was the kind of gesture that you remember decades later with profound affection and gratitude. He gave me access to his own library. Really? An astonishing really. thing to do. Yes. I mean, nowadays it would be unthinkable yes, for a teacher yes. to do that. You know, mm. It involved going to his house, for heaven's sake, safeguarding issues. Mm. But you know, for me it was that first collision with, might, there were plenty of books in my house, but nothing like that. Mm. Not book after book on one subject, mm. not carefully arranged, mm, mm, not mm. catalogued. I mean, it's a superb library. I mean, mm. he was a failed don. Um, and I, that library remained in my mind as a model until, you know, I suppose, with the results of television success and whatever, I was able to create one of my own. Yes. And it's that, it's that that really started to shape me. I read as a sixth former extraordinarily widely. Indeed, when I went to Cambridge for my first two years, I was actually pretty bored. I'd read most of the things I was supposed to read. And I didn't have very impressive teachers in my first year. Indeed, I remember vividly, this fact is documented at the end of my first supervision, my teacher, who was a dreadful woman at Newhall, now renamed Murray Edwards, uh, saying to me um, with, a, with a kind of slightly despairing tone in her voice, very blue stocking, well, I think you know more about this Starkey than I do to a bumptious 19-year-old, yes, yes. catastrophic. Yes. But it was true. And by the way, there's a witness, there's a witness you know, that, that if this is put down the Starkey arrogance, I can cite yeah. my old friend Chris Widows who can testify to this. When you talk about this and you talk about you know, being given, you know, an entree to this non's library and also just the whole structure of what you're talking about, um, it's not the same now for someone who might be suddenly uh, finding that they have an aptitude for history and that they love history. What, what, would you, what would you say to somebody who wanted to take your route? It seems that basically the whole structure of what we're talking about here is, is pretty much sort of fading away. Well, the sort of school that I was at, unless you're immensely lucky, 
I mean, we're, let, we're, we're assuming now we're not talking about somebody with prosperous parents who no, can send oh, yeah, them no, to public school. Exactly not. No. Somebody of my own background from mm. a council house. Um, uh, though parents, at least my mother, who was passionate about education and whatever. Um, I think it is very difficult, which is one of the reasons I've done this channel. Yes. That, that I am doing this channel. Um, that, that there is huge amounts of dross online. But what I'm trying to offer is something that is accessible, that is attractive, that um, has elements that all of us enjoy. It's not just sugar in the pill. I regard humour um, and, and the joke as an essential part of understanding. It seems to me that, that humour is, is a central part of the play of the mind. What we're talking about now isn't you know, the sober communication of this because it is important. It is, this is interesting. This isn't alien and different from you. It's in the past. But of course, it's part of that fabric that grounding yeah. that shapes you, mm. not in the sense of just you know, a piece of clay that is molded, but it's, it's, it's dialogue, it's, it's mm. a formative. The, the phrase that I use, I suppose, really, as the, um, as the kind of motto uh, of the channel is, it, it's, I've simplified the English, but it's Geoffrey Chaucer, the founding poet of English, who has this extraordinary phrase in, in one of his poems about old books from which libraries again old books from which new learning springs yes. so it's mm. the idea that the old isn't inert it's like a it's it's like a rich soil mm. from which new growth comes and mm. it's this organic relationship uh, that i'm trying to communicate well you also you know you have said at the very beginning in the, in the introduction uh, in the video introduction, that it's about the search for truth. I mean, two things. You say there's a lot of dross online. Yes, of course, that's true. However, history, uh, it seems, is one of the most popular um, subjects that you can find online, uh, particularly in shows like this or like your one. Uh, but truth, truth is the thing that's pretty kind of, you know, under attack. Yes. I mean, the trouble is that the... Uh what's called postmodernism uh, if you like right let's 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 try now and go back a stage the astonishing uh, edifice of success in every intellectual and practical sphere of the west in the last 500 years since the renaissance and the reformation is fundamentally a quest for truth yeah. and means of establishing it. The whole process of scientific experiment, the whole way in which as historians you learn to test evidence, the whole way in which, I mean, looking at a wildly different field, the way the Bible has been scrutinized, unlike the Quran, uh, the, the way in which the Bible has been scrutinized by scholars for inconsistencies to try to tease apart how this thing is put together. That extraordinary quest for truth. Mm -hmm. So that's the foundation mm -hmm. of modernity. Mm -hmm. Postmodernism is exactly what it says. It's yeah. an attempt at reacting against that, mm -hmm. at replacing the notion that there's a thing called objectivity or a truth outside yourself, with the notion that everything's inside yourself. Mm. It's all about feelings. Everything is relative. I had the most extraordinary experience last summer 
um, uh, in one of the moments when we were all let out during you know, bet between the phases of lockdown. And I was at a house party um, in a very handsome house in Norfolk, and lots of agreeable and very intelligent people there. And one of them, you were asking about how a young person copes. Yeah. One of them was uh, a young man from very good family, in fact, very good family, fallen on slightly hard times. He had this wonderful phrase, his grandmother had never forgiven his father for, being allowed, for, for allowing him to be born in a house that had a number. The, 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 hideous, the hideous shame. And he'd been to Oxford and he was a brilliant musician. And we got talking over breakfast, and the conversation was a bit like this. And I said I believed that there was truth and falsehood. He looked at me as though I'd been speaking Sanskrit. Really? Mm. In this very fashionable mm. education, mm. the notion that there were things that were true and untrue, and you'd means to establish one or the other, mm. had never, ever crossed his mind. Mm. Now, that's one of the reasons we are in the slough of despond. Mm. politically, intellectually, mm. socially, mm. that we are, mm. because the quest for truth has been abandoned. With that in mind, would you, would you still suggest or recommend to young people that they even go to university? I have a lot of doubts. It seems to me that in area after area, um, the postmodern has triumphed. I mean, mm. it's... Uh, the most obvious area, of course, is the vast conflict over what is meant by gender and transgender. Mm. The fact that the, the, universe, the union of university and college teachers declare that it is a matter of policy, that merely by saying you are a woman, you are a woman. Mm. Whatever your chromosomes, whatever your, as it were, sexual characteristics. Mm. Now, now, that is simply a lie. Mm, mm. But you're institutionalising a lie because you want to believe a lie. It's, it's in other words, it is as absurd mm. as believing literally in transubstantiation, mm, that mm. by the priest pronouncing the words, hoc es corpus, here is the body, that miraculously the bread and wine actually become flesh and blood. Yes. It is preposterous, and it's area after area that you look mm, at mm. Um, that, that, that this, these absurd notions. So, 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 so in, in other words, if, if you have universities mm. that have essentially been taken over by teachers who believe this, by administrators who collapse before them, and by students who are prepared to use every means of coercion, Mm. to enforce this. What is the point mm. of somebody with an open, questioning mind mm. going there? Well, what is the point? You've actually just said what I was about to say. All the young people I know, when I say young, I say between 18, 25, who I would consider to be people of real character and questioning, are not going or have not gone. That is it not... It is terrible. Well, it is. But you can no longer say, yes, of course you must go. I agree completely. I mean, what's happening now, of course, again, you know, let, let the cards be put on the table. There are very serious attempts now at creating new universities. Mm. Um, the trouble is, uh, where will you find the staff for these mm. new universities? Mm. Unless we all just appoint ourselves, mm. which is quite mm. nice, mm. <laughs> but, but impractical. But, you know, figures uh, like... Uh, Neil Ferguson are op of that distinction are openly talking about doing this. That's in America. There are people here. Um, the uh, what what I think has happened 
the universities have become like the medieval church. Mm. They're immensely rich, they're privileged, they uh, enjoy, at the moment at least, formally great prestige in society, but they become closed. Yes. Their minds have closed. Yeah. And it's time that the structure was blown apart. We need, in other words, we need an academic reformation. Yes. We need an academic reformation followed by a new enlightenment. Mm. I mean, these are momentous things, actually, they are, aren't they? They are momentous things. Um, I want to sort of ask you a question which I think you'll probably take apart. Uh, <laughs> oh, never, Peter, never, <laughs> exactly. Peter. I was yes, thinking, yes. you know, it was dying on my lips <laughs> on the way here. Um, but um, with that in mind, are you a nostalgic person? What a very interesting remark. To an extent, yes. Mm. You see, I think nostalgia is a peculiarly English. Mm. It's one of the dominant streets of English culture. I think the explanation I give is the savagery of our Reformation in the 16th century. Mm. The first great nostalgic poem in English, I think, is one of Shakespeare's sonnets, The Cold Bare Ruined Choirs, in which he stands in an unroofed church, because, you know, London, uh, after the Reformation, um, looked like a bombed city. Yeah. The city had originally been surrounded by these, or, or Oxford or Cambridge, they'd been surrounded by these great monastic buildings, essentially friaries and monasteries, and uh, with the confiscation by Henry VIII, the stripping of the lead from the roofs, the adaptation of the buildings sometimes to residential, sometimes merely abandoned. You, you had these I mean, vast structures mm -hmm. that were everywhere. There was a ruin. There was an ecclesiastical ruin, and Shakespeare stands in that, or imagines himself standing in that cold, bare, ruined choir, the unroofed building, uh, and comparing himself as an aging man with the balding and, and the hair mm. going grey to that. And there's a profound sense of loss. You know, uh, everybody asks the silly question, you know, was, had Shakespeare been a Catholic? Was Shakespeare a Catholic? What you have to remind yourself is that in 16th century England, everybody had been a Catholic. Yes. And everybody, bar a handful who were very brave, had committed apostasy uh, and betrayed it. So there's this sense of a lost, of a, I think a very powerful sense of a lost past. Um, the nostalgia that I feel is true and false. One is, has an awareness of the past, of course, as a professional historian, mm. but one has an awareness of the past of one's own childhood, of one's own youth. Uh, one has a sense of, in some ways, the fact that the 50s, 40s and 50s were, if you like, better. They were much more socially cohesive. There was that mm. world of opportunity that I was talking about, uh, of my own schooling mm. that has vanished, uh, and so on. But equally, of course, uh, one then has to have a pullback from that. Being gay, I benefited enormously mm. from aspects of the revolution of the 60s. Mm. So nothing is easy. No, nothing no, is straightforward. No, yeah. But what we have to do, we have to, uh, rather than simply sentimentalizing the past, one view of it, or just denouncing it, you know, which is the fashionable woke view. What we need is what I was talking about earlier, that sense that the past isn't an example to us. It can't be, though it can offer ideas, but it's a soil mm. from which you grow. And plants don't grow without soil. In yeah. other words, the great problem 
of postmodernism, the great problem of woke, is it's, it has no roots. It's shallow. Mm. It's purely destructive. Mm. It has no idea it wants de to demolish our present society. Mm. But what would one put in its place? Mm, mm. There is no notion whatever. It does seem entirely nihilistic. It is totally nihilistic. Mm. It is Anarch it's not even that dignified with anarchism, because mm. at least anarchism recognised individual initiative and so on, mm. and this instead just wants to replace it with groupthink. Mm. Um, so, but what that involves, as I said, is this, this attitude of the past, not as a model for us, not as something to be reverted to, um, not as something, again, that has vanished beyond recall, all those being involved in, in, in nostalgia, mm. but is as creative. I mean, this, I've, I've mentioned Chaucer, um, uh, he was one who understood this. Uh, another person that, that I found, another writer, thinker, that I found myself engaging in more and more and more as I got older is Edmund Burke, right. with the idea, you know, that famous supremely famous remark about if society is a contract, it's an intergenerational contract. It's a contract between those dead, those living, those and those yet to come. Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's this, this, what I would say, it's organic, it's literally organic. It is like a plant that is seeded, yeah. grows, dies, becomes the soil from which another plant mm -hmm. Seeds, grows, dies, that, that process. And I suppose, again, talking about nostalgia, another thing that I become very aware of as a gay man is that one hasn't done what is fairly usual to have children. Mm. There hasn't been that natural process of the movement of generations. W would you have liked to have had children? Um, no, I would have been an appalling father. Mm. <laughs> I, had, I had no paternal instinct, whatever. But again, as part of that process of self-scrutiny, yeah. which everybody should engage in as they get older, mm. and in fact, not simply should, you do more or less by definition, you become aware of that. So mm. I suppose you, again, you begin to question your legacy. Right? But at least uh, I think, actually, it's a, it's a good point though. You say that we, we all do this. Yes, we do. Um, I would, uh, without wishing to you know, indulge in special pleading, I do think that gay men or at least of our generations on the whole, um, they have always been characterised by having to look at themselves all the time. Well, we had to reinvent. Uh, yes, and they, 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 they basically carry that process on much longer because, you know, there was the lack of children. And, all that. Uh, and also because you have had to make your own self up to an extent. Precisely. We're all self-invented. Yes, I think And there's so. that very powerful element of self-invention. Mm. And certainly there were, uh, clearly there'd been, for most of recorded history, I imagine, people who practiced homosexuality. Mm. But the idea of a homosexual lifestyle, as mm. uh, particularly as somebody who was, was out and open about it, mm. this is completely an invention of the post-war period, yeah. I mean, you can you can see in you can see in Britain there, are, there there's there's the there's the odd isolated figure of the 30s and 40s that's you'll forgive a phrase grouping towards it, yeah. uh, but but in terms of something that's fully fashioned, it's I suppose really it's my generation.
Yes. Um, uh, the, the ones who are, I suppose, the children, essentially, uh, of the 68 Act. Yes. Um, yeah. um, but again, you know, it was a period of profound experimentation because it was only quasi-legal. Mm. Um, there were very peculiar rules that surrounded it. Um, and you, you, you had to decide what you were, what you did, how you talked about mm. it, how you lived. The first figure that you can actually see, uh, I think, in English literature as trying to fashion an overtly gay lifestyle is somebody now completely forgotten, a man called Denton Welsh. Mm. And I discovered him accidentally mm. when I bought his portrait. All right. And okay. I then started yeah. research. I was so fascinated by, by the portrait and its date in the 1940s. Uh, there's an extraordinary biography of him, um, uh, a lad who uh, clearly very handsome, rather, rather, rather fey, um, uh, had um, a dreadful hit-and-run accident on his bike, which... You know, fashionable cycling, what's mm. new in gay life. Um, uh, uh, but he was knocked off, he was badly injured, and he died prematurely of those injuries. But you can see him first really fashioning, consciously fashioning, mm. what a gay life might look mm. like. Mm. But that's in the 40s, and it's not really seriously picked up no. for another 20-odd years. On the point of nostalgia, there is also this, and I'm not asking... You this as an historian, particularly, but as a human being, as a hu but as a human being, what is your lived experience? Don't um, essentially, uh, you call this, me Megan. <laughs> this 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 nostalgia for something one couldn't possibly have known. Now I, I remember growing up that I did have this. Um, it was sort of almost almost on an aesthetic level. I mean, you know, I loved the clothes for another time and all of that stuff. Um, and I just wonder. Um, what I think is interesting about the whole woke attack that's happening is that perhaps it won't be possible to be nostalgic uh, if all of that, all of the past is, is essentially rubbished. How can one even be nostalgic apart from on a very personal level? Well, you see, there have been attempts at obliterating the past before. They are conveyed in literature most magnificently in 1984. Yes. Um, uh, 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 which, of course, all forms of totalitarianism involve the obliteration of the past, mm. real ones and imagined ones. Um, but what you, if, if you remember, in 1984, there are these little corners. There are mysterious little antique shops. Yes. There are places where there are old things mm. and you know, people with their collars up mm. go there. Because there is, in all of us, the, you've been mentioning that on YouTube, History is one of the most popular subjects. Mm. What is the other, in many ways, along with, along with there the, are the two things, I think, that would dominate much of the web. One of them, of course, is sex and pornography. Mm. The other is ancestor, mm. the quest for the ancestor. Mm. We all have it in us. I mean, even, you know, even within the most radical of the woke, uh, we're in a Black History Month, aren't we? Mm, or mm, have mm. we got out of it? I think um, it's finished. Uh, it's finished. Uh, I, presumably finishing with, with, with October. Um, so there is that appetite. Um, the trouble is it needs to be handled and focused properly. Otherwise, it becomes unthinking conservatism. It becomes uh, sentimentalised as nostalgia. What, what, what I'm pressing for is that creative Yes, of it. yes. Uh, when it comes to the channel, how how frequent are you going to be posting? Today, I mean later today, I mean for heaven's sake, we're doing it uh, almost as it's happening. Uh, we're planning to release, I think it's seven 
videos, oh, of which okay. many of them are 30, 40 minutes long. Right. And I'm hoping that we will have two or three like that per week. Right. I'll also be doing a Q&A mm. uh, to begin with generally, though uh, as things develop, it will become a members or friend, uh, the uh, usual uh, business subscribers uh, Q&A, uh, in which I will hope to engage directly. Yes. Um, and some of the ones that we got, I'm sort of from family and friends, literally, were really extraordinarily interesting. Yes. Um, and I found myself talking about them, I think, rather longer than I should have done. Um, but there was that, again, I think it's instructive for people to watch. I simply have a list of questions there. And you just respond as you go down the right, list. Right. So there's that sense of the immediate responsiveness, the, the, the ability to recall, the ability to, to offer a pattern, the, the genuine element of the, of the good stump speech. Um, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping people will be excited and surprised and uh, involved. Uh, I want genuine feedback. I want criticism. Uh, this is not wholly writ. This is, in, this is intended to be part of dialogue, mm. to trigger dialogue. Mm. Well, I'm, uh, there's almost no uh, chance that it won't, um, I think. Um, Dave, thank you very, very much. The channel, again, is called David Starkey Talks. Uh, it's going online today. And, uh, David, thanks for coming and t talking about that and about nostalgia and, and all of that. And, uh, well, uh, you know, maybe you will come back very shortly. And maybe, maybe you will give me feedback on the channel. I will give you and feedback. And take that apart. We will. <laughs> that's right. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Uh, that's it for so what you're saying is this week. Um, and uh, we shall see you next time. Thank you.